On this week's episode of the Shut Up and Build Bikes podcast, I share my interview with Matt from Eisen Workshop all the way in the UK. Each week on the Shut Up and Build Bikes podcast, I get on the phone and I talk to somebody in the frame building world and, uh, you know, I just try and, uh, try and interview somebody who, who is doing, who is living a life related to frame building. And so this week, it's uh, Matt from Eisen Workshop in the UK. And so uh, in a nutshell, you know, Matt got started building bikes, uh, I think he said 11 years ago. He was figuring it out and uh, working alone and he did uh, Talbot cycles and more recently, he joined um, to make a sort of a business venture with Karen Hartley from Hartley Cycles. And, uh, and they have, I think, two other folks who work with them. And so the, I think it's four people uh, run what is, you know, Eisen Workshop. And so you can get uh, stock size and I think custom made to measure bikes that are uh, Eisen brand. And uh, they're really sharp looking. I think they're all TIG welded steel primarily. And... Um, and they have a pretty unified look. Karen Hartley does all the paint work and it's all fade paint jobs. Um, everything, I think, looks freaking awesome. They, they look really sharp. And, uh, and so, yeah, I met Matt and, uh, and saw the stuff they have going on when I went to NABS uh, in Sacramento back in the spring. And uh, so it was really, really a treat to get them on the show uh, because a couple different reasons. One is that their business model isn't that of the sort of like quote one man band you know like in a lot of the frame builders that i interview uh a lot of people in i don't know that you see at trade shows like nabs and stuff nowadays it's one person working in their shop doing the the whole thing themselves wearing a whole bunch of different hats you know doing customer work doing uh design and fabrication work uh maybe doing paint work or maybe sending paint work out you know, final assembly, shipping stuff, going to trade shows and talking uh, to people about about it. And so, that, you know, you, you tend to wear a lot of hats if you do that. And meanwhile, there are other business models. And so uh, where, where, you know, Karen and Matt both had their own brands, and I think they most mostly kind of wore all the different hats themselves. Uh, with Eisen Workshop, then you can kind of uh, uh, specialize in different different skills. And so uh, I think Karen does a lot of the paint and Matt does a lot of the fabrication and, and the other folks that they work with uh, have other sort of roles. And he talks about that in the interview. Another thing that's really cool uh, that I wanted to, you know, a reason that I wanted to have Matt on the show is because I only know the North American frame building, you know, sort of world. Uh, I don't know the rest of the world as well. And so I know folks in Japan and Australia and different places who are doing this sort of thing. Uh, but I'm just curious, you know, when it comes to supply and getting, you know, uh, materials and tools and you're going to trade shows and, you know, finding painters and all these different things, uh, you know, is, what is that like when you, when you don't live in North America? I'm not really sure about that. And so uh, it was fun to some sort of ask some of those questions to Matt and get a sense of that, uh, sort of like the legacy of, you know, some English frame builders that I've heard of, you know, are those shops still kicking or not? Did, did that die out and come back? You know, these were questions that I had for Matt. So it's cool to, to kind of get some of that out in this podcast. I don't, I don't want this podcast to only be about, you know, North America or something. Uh, it's just, uh, I guess I'm starting with interviews 
primarily with folks that I know better and who I've met in person at shows. And so that's predominantly uh, who I've had on the show so far. But I intend to include a lot of people, uh, international builders. And so um, anyhow, where I cut into the interview here, I had asked Matt to explain the history of Eisen Workshop and what he and Karen were doing in these uh, sort of their different pursuits. Yeah, so we uh, we started it together. We've got um, uh, there's now there's uh, a few other people working with us. Um, so we've got um, someone called Fanella, um, who basically makes the business run. She's the uh, she's the office manager, so she shouts at me a lot for not having <laughs> done stuff at the right time, um, perfectly correctly, um, and then you know teams up with Karen to have a go at me for not doing what I'm supposed to do and um, making tools when I'm supposed to be building bikes. Um, <laughs> I'm always then, guilty um, of that. It's always, uh, it's always so nice to, to get to have the right tool at the right time and you never yep. do. And yep. it's so easy to get off track on those sort of long-term mm-hmm. projects when, when you have stuff to get done in the meantime. Yep. And before you know it, two weeks are gone and uh, yep. you've not done any work. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so um, there's uh, Fenella, uh, me, Karen, and uh, another chap uh, called um, Damien, who does like the building of the, the sort of the complete builds of bikes, and he's going to um, he's starting to uh, jump in with tube prep um, and stuff like that as well. Mm-hmm. Um, the sort of workload at the moment is um, Fenella deals with the sort of orders, um, and then she'll order the raw materials, put it in. Uh, a box for each customer then I might uh, drill whatever um, and then weld them up raise bosses um, clean them up blast them give them to Karen Karen paints them um, close them up and passes them over to Damien Damien builds them up and then Fenella ships them out so so previous to Eisen Workshop with the, the you know these four feet yep. four fine folks, uh, you had worked more independently with Talbot Cycles and Karen did Hartley Cycles, and it was sort of exactly, like yeah. the two of you decided that totally you could separate. you could do a little bit more together or something. Yeah, I think it's just that there's um, it, it's quite hard to make. Um, decent money out of doing custom stuff yeah um it was especially when we first started doing it it was a very busy market and um i'm not i think it's slightly different for karen but her situation was all i was trying to do was build um sort of good bikes i didn't have um anything particularly unique to offer mm-hmm. uh, if that makes sense so i wasn't um um, there wasn't anything um, in my offering that was uh, totally unique. Uh, you know, uh, you could look. Uh, Karen would be an example in that she, you know, she came from a fine jewellery background, and lots of the Hartleys that she does, they would have, you know, these sort of hand-cut pieces of like silver, yeah, like the person's name and cursive on the top tube and. And whatnot, and um, intricately carved lugs, this, that, and the third. And um, I was, you know, what I was trying to do was build um, a specific sort of bike, do it well, 
um, within the sort of brand aesthetic, but not there was nothing there that um, um, differentiated it enough to charge a, a stonking great premium, which meant that I had to be, you know, doing a fair number of bikes, being efficient about it. Um, and that was it was it was okay but there wasn't I, I got to the point where there wasn't much more that i could do on my own and there wasn't much more efficiencies that you could make in the process because so much of the time I was actually interacting with the customers and sort of tying down the customer side of things mm-hmm. um and that side a is not my favorite thing in the world db i'm not very good at it i'm not a fantastic uh, admin person so mm-hmm. that going further was I, you know it just wasn't really um there wasn't really anywhere for it to go so then you think well you know units are the way to do it move more units and and actually as we were talking about um earlier i ended up mostly just building the same bikes i think you right we were sitting down and we thought well it's just it was just one bike to start one frame to start with uh, dual seasons. This is a discipline in uh, in the UK and in the, on the continent. And there are some people over here that, that do it called audaxing. Um, uh, I think it's referred to as randonneuring over here. But it's um, it's not a race. It's definitely not a race. Um, it's sort of like the opposite of a race. You have to get to certain checkpoints um, within set times. But you can be too early. Um, it's over. 100, 200, 300, 400, 600, or like even 1,200 kilometres. Um, you do them in one sitting, um, and that's quite a popular thing to do mm-hmm. um, in, in England. And so, sort of tested out these bikes. Doing there was a a couple of years where we were doing miserable audaxes in terrible English weather <laughs> on these bikes, and. Um, just sort of tying it in. The other thing that um, uh, is a real bugbear for Karen is um, that she would ride um, what you know a tradition, what you would traditionally refer to as a, um, a 50 or a 51 centimeter frame, effective top tube, and that's the sort of cutoff point for when making 700 Cs work as best as they can is reached. Mm-hmm. Um, but of course, in in the industry as it's as it stands, um, 700 Cs are chucked on everything um, because of economies of scale and, and and whatnot. So she was before she was frame building. She was trying, you know, the um, the compromises that you have to make to fit those big wheels. And if you think about it, it's slightly perverse that you would shrink everything else down on a bike and then just leave the wheels the same yeah. size. Sort of seems, you know, slightly ridiculous. You being in the industry, you work out why it's happened, but it's not something that we had to do. Mm-hmm. So with the smaller sizes, we didn't. And um, we started off, we got a load of um, uh, 650C rims made by um, uh, Velocity, very nice rims. Oh yeah. Um, and got some, I, I can't even remember what the the tyres were now. Uh, they're one of the things. You know, someone made them. Um, uh, had Panarace and make them. Um, they're 28C, 650C tyres. And the idea with the All Seasons was that it would it all of them could take two different 
wheel sets. So the larger sizes could take 700 Cs or 650Bs with uh, with a higher volume tyre and the smaller ones could take the 650C or a 26 inch um, with a higher volume tyre. Mm-hmm. So they both had that sort of option um, of swapping around. Um, and it was just trying to build, you know, we... Everyone says it, you know, like you you want to make you want to bike you want to make the one bike for everything, and they, obviously that doesn't exist. There's there's never going to be one bike for everything, but it's one bike for most things for most people. Mm-hmm. Bearing in mind that it's a lot of money to spend on on yourself, and most people are not going to have. You know, we all know about like that customer that's bought you know eight custom bikes, but most people buy one. And then, if they're spending that much money on it, you want them to use it as much as possible. So, yeah, yeah, that that was the that was the logic. Yeah, so you were building um, a lot of these dual sport sort of all season bikes, and uh, and you felt like your strength with it was production and making the best bike you could. And so you felt like by teaming up with Karen and a couple other individuals, you'd be able to focus on sort of like a workflow that catered to your strengths and to other people's strengths uh rather than you know as as the single builder uh being responsible for uh you know building the bikes and for working with the customers and uh managing the workflow of everything and painting them and trying to do the marketing and making the bikes look remarkable uh is part of the reason that that making eisen workshop was attractive to you is because it it allowed you to focus on the things that you were more interested in or that you felt were your strengths yeah, 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 exactly. And I mean, I think I think this is true for a lot of people, but you know, you do get there are some people that go into frame building and they want it to be um uh I'm not they want it, it it's and I don't mean this in a um in a dismissive way, but it's about them. So you've got people who are the brand. Mm-hmm. You know? So um and that they are the marketable asset of, of or they are one of the marketable assets of the product yeah and that was never really what i wanted to do i just wanted to i wanted to have a, a business that made bikes mm-hmm. uh, and in you know there's the old say you don't get rich by doing work yourself you know <laughs> and if you're always if you're the only person who's who's capable of doing that then you're sort of really limiting yourself yeah and you're limiting the sort of the the progression of the business if you're the only person that can do yeah um, you know one aspect or all aspects of the bike so yeah um, yeah when i talked to carl strong on this show we talked about how like the the small scale uh sort of handmade bike business model doesn't really scale because if what you're selling to your customer is that like sort of um that hand-holding sort of, uh, you know, relationship where they get to ask you all these questions and they get your expertise and stuff, then uh, that's not something you can just scale bigger and bigger and bigger. If you have more of like a boutique brand, like, you know, there's companies like Moots and, uh, and all sorts of brands where it's not any one individual that is the brand, but it's, uh, it's you know, it's a team of people with like a particular ethos or something, then that actually has a little more scaling potential, I think. And so, like, yeah. what you're doing yeah, with yeah, Eisen Workshop yeah. isn't, it isn't just, uh, you know, your name and your face and that's it. It's, uh, it's a little bit more of, like, actually a brand that is uh, unmarried from your specific identity. Yeah. 
yeah yeah i mean my face isn't going to be selling many products to be honest <laughs> with you and um my name is too long to go on a down tube so there was never any uh never any possibility of that were really working out um, uh-huh. i also think the other thing is that with like the full custom i think that actually puts off a lot of people i think a lot of people just find that too intimidating mm-hmm. um and just the 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 idea that like nothing you know you are going to be responsible for everything if you're the sort of person that's um like a sensible person who is sort of questioning well what what if x goes wrong if you if you started from something and the 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 whole theory of that the whole idea of it is that every single decision is made around you then i think that can be very daunting Mm -hmm. and there's a lot of people there's comfort in being told here's a product we know it works there's uh, you know there's there's hundreds of them out there already mm-hmm. um and you come in and you can test ride one and you can look at it and you can see that it's already an existing product and this is what you will get mm-hmm. i think a lot of people um would prefer that i think yeah and also a lot of people don't want to wait you know so with eisen workshop um, do you do made to measure or do you do stock sizes or we do stock sizes. We do do a so we have a like you can um, uh, have a uh, there's a custom geo option um, and there's there's a sort of charge massive yeah. charge within parameters you know so as long as it's not going to actually affect um, if if we're trying to get you know if it's someone trying to get rid of top two spaces or trying to add top two spaces to a size then 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 we we can work with that. But most of the time, we try and sort of go towards the um, off the, off the peg um, uh, sizing. We don't we don't carry any stock um, of built bikes. We carry stock of tubes, but we we build to order. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean that's mostly just sort of the practicalities of uh, storing stuff. When we first started, so we took. Um, uh, we got, we put, we built a hundred exactly how many, how many it ended up being. We took thirty orders, and then we did like some press bikes and stuff. So I think it was like thirty-five bikes the first time, and um, sort of we were saying about enjoying the process. So I was, you know, I was like, yeah, we made it big time. I'm gonna build thirty bikes at once. So I did like every op, did it thirty-five times. You know, might have done thirty-five times. Drew the water bottle bosses thirty-five times. And it was just a total disaster. It was there was just piles of tubes everywhere. <laughs> and then as the further further down the line you got, the worse it got because everything just got bigger and bigger. So then you're like, all oh, right, okay, we've made a sub assembly. Right now we've got an awkward sub. We've got 35 awkward sub assemblies knocking around in the workshop. Mm-hmm. And we've got 35 frames knocking around in the workshop. Yeah. Um, and there was a point about a year ago where we I actually just. We've got lots of, um, we've got quite a big space, and um, rather than, uh, you know, having a one mill where I'm having to, you know, recenter everything, set up for, you know, um, uh, different, uh, you know, different mitering operations, mm-hmm. we've just got a, um, mills for, uh, we've just got horizontal mills set up for every operation. Yeah, and that's the way to do it. Pop, they're zeroed. And you just leave them be. Yeah. Um, and there was a point last, yeah, about a year ago, where I was just like, I, I've sort of felt like I've been 
there's just something that it just didn't like it wasn't working basically this sort of whole process wasn't working i was keep getting having to go back to things and actually went back to building one at a time mm-hmm. um and it didn't actually make that much of a difference to the sort of the time that everything was taking because the you you can only weld one bike at a time mm-hmm. and um the because the the fixtures are set up um and they're reliable and you can trust them there's no you know it, it just doesn't take very long to actually do the cutting and we do we're back to doing uh four uh four at once so we we, uh, we try and do four bikes at once yeah and the um the bot the bottleneck for us is paint because anything more than four and any of the paint that you've mixed is is already going off oh so yeah mi- the pot life yeah, of the mix- of the once you mix, yeah, mix yeah, the, yeah. the catalysts and the solvents and all that stuff exactly exactly and then also when you've got drying frames the amount of space that you need to give them you know because you can rub up against the i can rub up against anything in my workshop you know nothing's nothing bad's going to happen yeah but you, you know you need like five times the amount of space around a, yep. a freshly painted bike so yeah the bottleneck is is paint but anyway sort of four seems to be the magic number for our setup obviously everyone else is experienced yeah you know i i've studied some uh <laughs> It's funny in the podcast, you know, bike frame building tends to be less about manufacturing and more about like, uh, you know, the customer relationship or the design or the process. Uh, but, you know, sometimes it, it can be definitely uh, valuable to think about things from like a more of a manufacturing perspective. And something that I've studied some as a curiosity and as, as it applies to my CNC machining is, you know, like lean manufacturing or like the Toyota method or whatever. And, uh, yeah, and I yeah, think yeah. one of the big ideas with that is like rather than producing in big batches and having stuff sitting around in warehouses or in stockpiles or on the shelf or something is to, yeah, like do small batches or things one at a time. And the way that they the way that I've seen that where that actually can work for a small shop is if you have the space to keep all your areas set up all the time. So like if you're OK, I'm going to grab these tubes out of the box yeah. and I'm going to do a bottom bracket and uh, chainstay subassembly fixture, then like all the tools you need are already kind of set up and ready to go and you can just kind of walk through those steps without getting anything up, setting it up or breaking it down. And so in my shop, I've always had a really small space and the way that I made it work was by having tools that you get out and you put away again and they don't take that long to set up. But, but you know, it's considerable then that if you were making, if you had a list of 30 bikes to make, you'd probably want to do sub-assemblies and so you know that's kind of for me i think one of the big things that you'd want to have set up is those they call them uh cells i think like a like a manufacturing cell yeah. but you know it's just like a little c-shaped set of tables or something or, or, or benches or whatever it is and you just kind of walk through it in in a you know in progression from left to right or whatever and you just do the steps and the tools are already out there and if you need safety glasses at this station then the safety glasses are right there and if you need a measuring tape at this step, then the measuring tape is already there and you don't need to walk across the shop to do the things. You just kind of step down the table. And I always thought that'd be cool to get to that point uh, with, you know, making bikes that you had that kind of setup. And I've, I've never had that, but it sounds like that's maybe more like the kind of shop that you run is where you, um, you do enough volume that that's actually consideration. Yeah. I think the, so the other sort of main thing that we learned very early on was, um, the importance of checklist and QC. 
Um, and you don't, you know, I've never worked in a, I've never worked in a factory. I've never worked in, um, uh, I'd never worked in an environment where you're doing like the same, um, repetitive tasks, um, over and over again, um, and, and tasks that, you know, are requiring this level of QC. And one of the things we had go wrong with that first batch of 35, and I don't, I still don't know how we got away with this. It not been much, much worse was, uh, well, there's two things. One was um, we'd uh, we obviously we brought everything together, and we used to buy um, uh, we they were built with uh, threaded BSA uh, 68mm BB shells. Yeah, I bought them from uh, a well-known supplier. It's not Paragon, <laughs> um, and these shells they were um, uh, they had on the inside of the the shell they had a um, uh, indicator um, marking. Um, to show which side was the drive side. Oh no! And I've always, I've, I've always, I, up until that, up until then, I'd always bought these BB shells. Everything was fine, always the same. And so we built this batch of bikes, sent them out. Everything was blessed. Um, and we, within like a week, we got an email. It's like BB's backwards. Like, Send us a photo. Send me a photo. I can't be backwards because the indicator line's there. And then um, they were like, no, it definitely is. Like, and then sent photos <laughs> with, you know, the PB cups in back to front. And you're like, oh, fuck. Like, and then you think, how does that happen? See, the, but the things that's been tapped as well, it's been chased and faced. But then what had happened was the uh, the lad that we had working with us at the time, and it was not, it's not his fault at all. He, hadn't, he wasn't used to using these tools. And, I used to work as a mechanic and it was sort of one of those rules punishable by violence that, you know, we have one of those tools, it's the part tool when we take the, uh, you put the, um, you put the dies in, um, choke the taps in, um, and then you take, loop the taps in the frame, um, pull the handles out and put the, uh, put the facer onto the, onto yeah. the handle. Um, and the, it's a, the rule of law that you the the the, the bit with the, the the handles of the pokey bit always gets the drive um always gets the drive side uh-huh. but this was sort of as ingrained as him so he was doing 30 bikes he got a little bit confused he thought oh no i mustn't and you know rather than force it he was like oh no this isn't working so then he just got a bit confused and like put the wrong t- you know he chased them but the bb show was back to front and and nobody um, nobody noticed some, no one noticed and they just went out and then um it what in the end it was three of them there was only three that that had run that had gone wrong and we, i spoke to the supplier he said oh that's that's strange and uh, i was like yeah it's really strange it's you know really 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 strange <laughs> really 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 <laughs> annoying um and he's like yeah i was like so you know what's what what are you going to do about it um, and he's like, well, I mean, I can give you the new BB shells. <laughs> um, and that, you know, the thing is that he, he's right that, you know, we should have checked them. And now, you know, we have this checklist, which yeah. is we have, we have a, um, um, uh, a BB and it just sits in the drawer. And then when the stuff is being, when the BB is being put in the box, uh, so when they're getting taken out of the box, we, we run a bit. We put a, an actual BB yeah. into them to check that both threads are doing what they're supposed to do. 
um, and then that's uh, that's a little box that gets ticked. Um, and so we just have like you know these just these checklists, and they're ticked and they're initials, and then you've got uh, you know it's just it's just forcing you to check because there's in your mind you do this when you're building one bike you check all of these things yeah but it's quite easy to go i've already checked that when you're mm-hmm. doing numerous of them yeah and sort of lose track whereas if there is a piece of paper that's following that that frame around mm-hmm. and every time you do a task you've got to you've got to put your name to it and you mm-hmm. know that if you get it wrong fenella's going to come and shout at you <laughs> then then you think twice you know yeah <laughs> you make sure you uh, you make sure you um you make sure you check check what it's yeah checklists, so, yeah, checklists make a ton uh, of sense too you know they uh, i forget the story that i heard the details of it but you know about the, the history of aviation and stuff that it, it didn't take many uh many flights to to go wrong before they implemented a checklist and it's like pretty straightforward if you're a pilot and you're gonna fly a plane and you've flown planes before you know you should be able to remember all the steps but if you just have a checklist yeah. it just makes it a little bit easier and a little bit more foolproof and in aggregate over all the, all the flights that happen all the time, you know, it saves a couple, uh, a couple catastrophes and that's a, uh, it's worth a lot. And then what it really allows you to do is, you know, if it's just a system that's in place, then it allows you to put your brain on things that are a little more important than trying to remember whether or not you've done this or that, or, or checking something that you maybe already checked before because you can't remember. Now you're double checking it. Well, that's a waste of time too. Yeah, exactly. And you can't, you know, if you if you take if you've got a checklist and you can not have to think about checking stuff, then it, it leaves your brain free to be thinking about the process, to be yeah. concentrating on, you know, well, you know, well, the settings, whatever, whatever <laughs> other stuff that we, yeah. your brain will be better off dealing I'm, with. Um, I'm guilty of that. I've I identified a long time ago that I really should have a checklist when I ship my tube bender. And I keep not yeah. getting around to it, but it would just make it a lot easier. I don't think anyone has missed, a, like I don't think I've forgotten to include anything yet. Uh, I'll tell you but what, I'll tell you what, you're not, not going to do it. You're not going to get a checklist until you until you have to spend <laughs> hundreds of dollars shipping something out, yeah. and then yeah. all of a sudden you're going to have a checklist. It'll be somebody who orders it in Australia or something, and then uh, and then I'll have to ship it. It's always part. Australia. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, okay, so uh, this is, it's cool to hear the background because I wasn't exactly familiar with how Eisen Workshop works. Um, where, where did you learn and when did you learn to make bikes? I just, um, so I'd, um, I've never uh, got on particularly well with formal education in general. Um, and I was a mechanic. Um, and I just, there was this book, there's a guy called, um, uh, I want to say William, but I don't think it is, something Chimeneus, and um, it's called like Beginner's Guide to Lugged Bicycle Construction, and it was on Amazon in like the early days of Amazon, and um, well, not the early days, it was, you know, I don't know, it was about 11 years ago, and I bought this book, and it was one of these sort of, sort of shonky Amazon reprints, um, so sort of terrible black and white photos, but it just shows you how to build a, a lugged frame um, with a vice, a Dremel, a hacksaw, um, and uh, an angle finder and a protractor, uh-huh. and uh, and some map gas, you know, like plumber's map gas and um, silver. And so I I bought that book just 
just because I wanted to, you know, I wanted to have a go. Um, and uh, I had a like a tiny little corner of a railway arch in um, in Brixton in in London. Mm-hmm. And I just used to go down there and I'd spend, you know, my evenings and weekends doing that, and then drinking beer. And within like, you know, I think it took about a month, and I just, you know, I'd finished the frame, my first frame. I've still got it, still got it in the works. So actually, I had to dig it out because we were moving some stuff, and I turned it up, and it is, it is the shonkiest thing that you could ever imagine. That like <laughs> is, it is so badly built. It does, it's not straight. It doesn't fit. Um, like there's gaps in the, there's ga- gaps between the lugs um, oh, wow. and the tube, and it's, and it's, it's been, it's been powder coated. You, you think, I think that, I think the powder coat might be structural, but um, <laughs> I, I rode that for like, um, I rode that for about two years in one form or another, just to sort of, because I was expecting it to break, mm-hmm. uh, and it didn't, and then it was just, I just sort of got, I got a bit addicted to it, and then started fillet brazing. Um, and I just made loads of bikes for like friends and you know friends to just be like buy buy tubes, buy the tubes and I'll make it. Mm-hmm. Um, and then sort of slowly got less and less bad at it. Uh, and then yeah, that that's it really. Um, just 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 practicing on my own. Um, mm-hmm. You do even like. You do a lot of TIG welded bikes now. I do now, yeah, and also just from a from a, a, a processes point of view, you know, I, I like other stuff other than bikes. And as a, a fillet brazing and silver soldering, they've got they've definitely got their uses, and you can definitely build really nice bikes with them. Uh, but in sort of in life in general, it's it's very very limited to you know what you can do um and if you can weld then all sorts of other you know possibilities are open to you i like i like cars and this you know it it makes all sorts of stupid things that you can do with cars possible yeah in a way that you 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 can't do with fillet brazing so and then you know different materials and um yeah it's just it, it made a lot of sense to um to go that way it's lighter um i still don't know you know i think what which methods way of putting heat into the tube whether sort of like you know the the large heat affected zone from philip raising or this you know localized but high temp from the welding, whether yeah, I'm not sure which is um, better or worse. I, d- I doubt it makes much. Difference. Yeah, there's um, there's probably millions of bikes that are brazed in steel and millions that are yeah. uh, TIG welded steel, and uh, they seem to all hold up pretty well. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So yeah, I mean, mostly it is. It was just sort of effort, and also I just like. Uh, and people, this is not me knocking it. People that you know make beautifully fillet braised frames, and you know you get that lovely transition. You know, um, filing fillets. Yeah, I mean it looks great, but I'm just, I was just so done with filing fillets. I was like, oh, look, you know, <laughs> it's slow. 
Especially the bottom bracket cluster, because you have some sort of like oh, uh, the inner sort of like on the head tube or something. You can kind of uh, you can actually hit like a like a rat tail file or a round file. You can kind of you know wrap around through. It's like a gullet, but where you have the the bottom bracket, there's some sort of like little divot things. You know, like the the joint of like a compound yeah. joint of of the C tube and the and the down tube and the bottom bracket shell, and you get that sort of inside pocket that you're trying to polish and that just takes yeah eternity if you want it to look really yeah. slick yeah and of course ironically that that's you know that's one of the or can be depending on the geometry that can be one of the more annoying places to weld as well it's just yeah it's an annoying part of the bike yeah it's, <laughs> but, it's difficult um, but yeah i was just done with it really i just couldn't be bothered like yeah fillets and it didn't it didn't make sense for where i wanted to go so yeah I, I, Everything I do now is is welded, except for obviously like bosses and stuff, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, other than that, and internal routing, other than that, um, and head sheet badges. So I do, I do, I do still have to do um, stuff with oxyacetylene. Yeah. Um, I, but it's, it's it's not the it's not the method of joining the tubes. Yeah. Uh, so I have some more questions here. Uh, what, one thing I'm curious about is, like, I, I have a pretty good understanding of, you know, what the the custom bike frame building world looks like in the United States and North America. And, uh, you know, there's there's quite a few builders. There's a bunch of trade shows. I know that if I want to order materials, uh, you know, there's, of course, there's, like, the local welding supply. But then we also have Paragon Machine Works. We have Nova Cycle Supply, Bike Fabrication Supply, Frame Builder Supply. Uh, there's there's a whole long list of people who sell different bits and pieces that go into making bikes uh, here, and so like I just don't have a very good grasp of what it's like in the UK. With uh, you know, I know there's a couple little bike shows. There's the Bicycle Academy uh, seems to be doing a lot of cool stuff, and there's you know a handful of builders, and there's Seaway I think, and I, I don't I just don't know what it looks like there versus here, and I'm curious to hear you know what the community feels like. Um, so we've got, yeah, I mean, I, we order a lot of stuff from Paragon. Mm-hmm. Um, the, so you can get Paragon stuff from Seaways. Um, uh, it's run by a guy called Peter. He's a very nice guy. Um, he's got the, uh, the internet's oldest website that we often <laughs> see. Um, uh, it was old when I started, like 11 yeah. years ago, yeah. old. You know, and it's still old. Um, and I, whenever I see him, I'm like, you're going to sell the website? He's like, soon, soon. I don't know. <laughs> um, but yeah, if you're if you're a hobby builder, if you're doing one-offs and stuff, then you can get... Um, he, he stops tagging machine works. Um, so you can get a lot of the stuff. You can't get the things that you... I mean, just sort of like... Sort of nerdy nonsense. But those, um, those dropouts that Nova do with... Um, they're like cowed with the replaceable alloy mm-hmm. um, dropouts that you see. You know, I noticed those in American bikes. No one really uses those over here because we don't use Nova. Um, but we, what we do have is Columbus, Data, Reynolds. Um, so we can get hold of tubing, I think, um, probably easier than you lot can. Um, uh, as far as Ty is concerned, you've got Data and you've got um, you've got Reynolds. We haven't got you've got 
a better supply of sort of good quality domestic plain cage dictatable tubing it's quite expensive for us to do that but buying from Reynolds or from Dada you can get that stuff mm-hmm. um, the, the sort of manufacturing in England was there was a obviously it's not the uh, point of this podcast but um, in the 80s there was a sort of a willful destruction of manufacturing in the UK in mm. a way that there just sort of wasn't so much in the States we became incredibly services driven um, which is sort of swings around about for us because I can buy uh, machinery for for pennies yeah. um, I bought a um, um, Bridgeport J-head mill for 300 quid once um, <laughs> that's awesome it, it cost me twice twice as much to move it yeah it yeah other thing um because just no one uses them but then what that means is that you don't have all of that sort of ancillary backup so i can often end up ordering ordering welding wire from the states wow. and silly things like we're ordering um uh what like decent welding gloves because i you don't want big bulky yeah well, you can buy sort of big gauntlet type gloves over here but i don't want those i want you know mm-hmm. um like small intricate yeah i use Um, like these uh these the ansel brand they're like i don't know if they're kevlar or maybe they're just cotton i don't really know but they're uh they're awesome they're they're a lot of dexterity i wouldn't want to weld anything too heavy duty but when i'm welding bikes they're awesome because they're just i don't know they're great uh i don't know where you get those uh if you're not in the united states i just get them from like mcmaster car or something but uh but yeah, certainly a lot of people like yeah. using the thin, thin leather like Tillman gloves and stuff too. And uh, yeah, that's why I've got Tillman, Tillman and a Tig finger. And you're oh, you're Tig finger, yeah, love that. Yeah, and then I mean, um, as far as so like, yeah, like something that I think is interesting is that a lot of American frame builders from like the '70s, like you know, when we had. I don't know, bikes just weren't that big of a deal in the United States until like the 70s, I guess. There was a big bike boom and uh, and people got really excited about like the 10 speed and, and I don't know, I'm not that much of an expert on that history, but I think frame building was a bigger thing in the UK and other parts of the world. And then in the 70s, you had a bunch of American frame builders that were getting started and getting excited about, you know, making, making bikes here. And uh, I took a frame building class in 2010 with this guy named Doug Faddock, and he had learned at Ellis Briggs in the 70s, I think 1975 or so. Mm-hmm. He had gotten like an apprenticeship, and he went to Ellis Briggs, which is, I don't remember where exactly, <laughs> um, but it's in the UK, right? And uh, that's where he had learned to, uh, to make yeah, bike yeah, frames. Yeah. And I think Richard Sachs also did an apprenticeship uh, somewhere in the UK, and I think there were a lot of builders who learned directly in the UK or they um, they learned from someone who had uh, gone to the UK and so you know there was this weird thing in with American frame building where it was just kind of starting to to appear here in like the 70s and then yeah. since then we've had a thing when you know what's your experience of like the legacy of that like some of those shops from from that period and onward did it die off some since then or has have there been yeah so the shops are gone. All of the shops are gone. Yeah. Um, some of the people are still about. So uh, a friend of mine, um, Winston Vaz, he um, he trained at Hol- Holdsworth 
Okay. Um, he he worked. Then he was at uh, at Roberts, um, and he must have been building for like nearly forty years. Wow. And he's like, he's probably built more bikes than than every you know all the other. If you add up like all of the new framers over the last yeah. ten years, he's probably be built or been involved in building more more bikes than them combined. <laughs> wow. Um, and then there's Chaz Roberts who's still building. So there's the, the Roberts family, sort of a interesting um, uh, uh, sort of uh, family backstory, which I'm not going to go into. It's uh, sort of rather complicated, but you've got, um, uh, there was a, a, a famous bike shop, which is one of the last of these old, um, uh, old building, uh, which was Roberts. Um, and um, Jeff, sorry, uh, Jeff Roberts is still building. So uh, one one of the sons, Jeff, um, is still building to this day, and he's still building under that name. But it's not obviously it's not the same. Um, it's not the same thing. And I think like talking to these guys, um, they're both sort of Londoners. They've been around, you know, especially Jeff. You know, he's been doing it since since he was a kid. His dad mm. was, you know, the person who started Roberts and. I think they view the, um, uh, you know, there's that sort of, uh, it's, it's less so now, but there was maybe sort of five or six years ago, that sort of fetishization of um, artisan craft, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and when, uh, when Winston was working at Holdsworth, you were sitting on a production line and you were doing a joint. So the bikes were moving around on chains and you were doing a joint all day that's what you were doing yeah so that was you know to them that was manufacturing they you know and it was it was it was a production line um and yeah i think they find it you know quite quaint the uh that sort of that idea you know hand hand built lovingly one at a time <laughs> yeah, well, that's the the experience of working it like in factory in in a production. I, I think the uh, the romanticism around you know being a frame builder and having your own shop and making bicycles doesn't really include a whole lot of you know oh I'm gonna make like you know fifteen hundred bikes this year and so like that's you know just just cranking them out you know that the the culture that we have when you go to a show like Nabs or something and you see uh, sort of frame building as it is now yeah it's it's a totally different emphasis people are um you know it's, it's about the product and it's about uh it being very beautiful and refined and the customer relationship and you know the the satisfaction of making something with your hands and it's you, you compare that with uh old school production shops or new school production shops or or production in taiwan or something it's just they are very different things and um yeah, yeah. No. I, I can understand if you had worked one of the things that- if you had cranked out thousands and thousands of bikes in your career and then you see people uh, showing like beautiful refined bikes at a show, it would, it would be kind of funny. <laughs> yeah. Um, and it's one of the things I get quite annoyed about is when people sort of, um, and I mean, it's never, it's never normally overt, but you often get this sort of like um, overemphasis on like made in the UK just because, you know, that's my example. You know, as if there's people sort of implying that there's nothing inherently bad about having a bike made in Taiwan when Taiwan's the bicycle making centre of the world. Yeah. Eighteen year olds who've been who've built more bikes 
this month that you're probably going to build in your career. Yep. Um, you know, there's, there is benefits in b- b- building stuff domestically, but it's it's not it's almost certainly not going to be quality because if you go to Taiwan and you you find the right factory and pay the right money, you'll get probably the best bike. You know. Mm-hmm. Um, but you'll have to order maybe a thousand of them. You'll have you know. <laughs> There yeah. are there are there are constraints in that, and there yeah. are reasons why you would make you want to make stuff domestically. Mm-hmm. But it's not because it's better. It's not because the product can be. It's not because the product is inherently going to be better. Yeah, yeah. Especially, um, I mean, I sometimes and that, I look that at gets abused. I look at the work that you guys do, where just about every bike has a uh, a beautiful fade paint job, and especially some of the the Hartley bikes have the sort of jewelry details and. Um, you know, it's like a, it's a handcrafted sort of thing and it's, it's a different product, you know. And so if you wanted to make that in production quantity in Taiwan, I'm sure they'd be very good at it too. That's not really uh, what they're known for and it's not really what people go there buying, I guess. Uh, usually it's, it's more, you know, produced to a price point in the same way that you could produce to a price point anywhere else in the world. Uh, but uh, certainly in terms of like if you want to make straightforward you know, bikes like like Maxway is the production facility in Taiwan that does all the Surly bikes and a lot of stuff for uh, a lot of companies. And um, you know, if you want to produce that just as well anywhere else, uh, you know, it's going to be hard to to match the quality that they do. Yeah, yeah, and it's one of the things that we. I mean, we don't. It's not. This isn't what we set out to do. But often, you know, so with the um, the, the paint jobs that we have, um, we I've I've always really like um uh i've always really like candies i'm i'm colorblind as it happens which you may have guessed from some of the paint jobs i've done but um uh, um i've i've always really liked that uh that sort of the, the depth that you get off of the candy and for, for anyone that doesn't like know um how candies work there it's basically a silver base normally for us a poor silver big um chunky coarse silver uh, base and then you put a tint over the top, um, a tr- translucent tint, um, whatever colour it may be, and then we fade something else into that. So it might be, you know, red faded um, into into blue, and then you get a nice purple in the middle, or you know, whatever. I'm yeah. That. I know, like Aaron's like, you can't fade those two colours together. You know, this is why you're not allowed to do colours. But anyway, you get the idea. Um, and so they're nice. Um, but the other thing about them is that. If you went to a factory to spec them, the factory would be very unhappy with you coming to them and doing that because the the problem with the the two parts of that um, that two parts of that um, that scheme that causes issues in mass production and one is that the candies um, there's no paint code for a candy well there, sorry there is a paint code for a candy in as much as there's a paint code for that tint but the depth of the colour and the actual shade of that colour is totally determined by the um, the application by the uh. Um, uh, by the by the painter. So if you put too many coats on, and if your thinner is behaving in a different way today, or if you've got a different thinner, then you might need two coats one day and then three coats the next. Mm. So it is totally down to the finisher to be able to to replicate that scheme that you want, which is obviously a total paint. And then with fades, it's exactly the same. Where do you draw that gradient? And people will come to you and they will give you, I know painters, um, like one of the, um, uh, I mean, there's, there's two really, uh, really good, well-regarded 
uh, finishes in the UK. Um, not the only ones, but the two that are my mates, at least. Um, Dr. Bobby and um, Dan Cole from Cole Coatings. Mm-hmm. And like the worst thing for them is if someone comes with, you know, they're, maybe they're a graphic designer and they come with these intricate draw- drawings that they've done on a 2D model of their frame and they're like, put that on a bike. <laughs> and, you know, that's not, that's not how it works. This is a, it's a 3D space. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, gradients, you know, that it's so hard to sort of define where that's going to start and where that's going to stop. Yeah. So you'll be able to find a factory that will do it, but you're going to have to pay for it. And one of the things that you find is that in, you know, in our, and in any industry, I'm not sure about it, it's just the way the world goes. But if someone does something good and interesting and cool in like these, the sort of small, like bougie end of it that we work in, mm-hmm. the bigger firm will come and they'll, they'll, they'll copy it. You know, because that's the new cool thing, mm-hmm. and then they're going to come, and then they're going to they're going to do that. Um, and so, what you want to, you know, if you can do things that it's really hard for people to go and copy, because we don't have a problem, because Karen's doing it. Yeah, Karen's an amazing finisher, so yeah. Karen can control that, um, and we we've got no worries about where the fades are going to be. We've got no worries about the depth of the color because Karen knows what she's doing. She understands exactly what we want for the band and what, what they're supposed to look like. So it's not a problem. Yeah. But, you know, take that to a factory and it's going to cost, going to cost you a whole chunk of change. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And I think that's, that's one of the lessons of like, uh, you know, small scale frame building or whatever it is, is to realize the things that you can do that other people can't do as well and to leverage that or to emphasize that. So, you know, like one of the things that you'll hear that's really cool about, uh, you know, mountain bikes and small scale frame builders is that, you know, if you're, if you're just building bikes, uh, out of your own shop and each one of them is custom and, uh, you talk to somebody on a Monday and they say, yeah, I really want to try this yada yada new geometry and this new part. And then, you know, maybe Wednesday you finish the bike and you send it to paint and, you know, your turnaround is just so quick. You can try things and you can develop things. And whereas, uh, you know, a company like Giant or Specialized or something, they can maybe try and prototype stuff, but they're releasing new new product lines, you know, like once a year or something, and they, they can't sell anything that they can't get mass produced. So everything has so much more of a lead time. And it's cool to realize the, the strengths that you have over the giants, the, <laughs> the literal giants in the industry who have way more money than you yeah. and way more facility than you, but maybe they're not as nimble or something. Or maybe when they go to get stuff painted, certain things are just impractical at their scale. And so uh, it's cool to leverage that. Or, or like another big thing with custom frame building is just that like, you know, you get to have a relationship with the customer. And so, you know, you get to leverage that too, that like, you know, with a company like, uh, you know, a big company that they can't provide that same sort of thing. So rather than just trying to be a higher quality version of some other company, you can leverage the strengths that you actually have, which is cool, you know. Yeah, and also like even down to the of economies of scale are dependent on scale. So you know we're building basically an an, an amount of bikes so insignificant that it, it, you know specialized could could lose that in a in a run and not even worry about it. It's pretty built <laughs> yeah. into their um, built into their costing model the amount of bikes we build in a year. Um, but then what you know we can sort of use just for example, like the the water bottle bosses that we use, they're stainless steel, they're dead end, uh, and they're expensive. Um, but 
for the XR, what it is, like four or five quid a frame, um, it's it's a no-brainer for us. But if yeah. you're building tens of thousands, then that's a you know that's that's a huge amount of money. So then you're you're going to go well. Actually, someone along the line is going to go well. Let's not use those. Let's use something else. Let's mm-hmm. use this cheaper. Um, you know, whatever forty-one thirty um, um, uh, straight through bosses. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's nothing wrong with that. You know, they're, they're they're all right. But you've now got a way of you've got an extra way. Well, you've got four extra ways of water getting in the frame. Yeah. And you've got a contact point on the frame where something's getting clamped onto it. Yep. That isn't stainless. The paint's going to get mud. And, um, uh, you know, it's just sort of, it's just, it's just little stuff like that, isn't it, that you can, you, you can, you can bring um, that it's not practical for the, for the big boys to do. Yeah. Yeah. So tell me about... Um you know the trade shows in the UK. There's is it bespoke, right? There's a show that's in in Bristol. Yeah. I, yeah. Uh, it's so funny. Yeah. I, I'm like I've never considered going because it's so far away and it'd be expensive. And and there's other shows here. And because of that, I uh, I don't even know that much about it. But that's a show that you've exhibited at. Yeah, I've been to uh, bespoke maybe four times. I think. Okay. Uh, I've not been for the last few years. Um, I've been sort of trying to trying to push it, push the states um, more. Yeah. Uh, the um, I think it's the same with it's a, it's a it's a it's a cool show. It's very different to to Nabs. Um, Nabs to me, I I um, I enjoyed Nabs. I've got nothing to base it. I don't know whether it was better or worse than any of the shows gone before it. I you know I had a lot of fun there. I met a lot of people. Um, I think it's always slightly easier when you're like a foreigner outsider, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, people, are, you know, everyone that I met was very welcoming, um, yeah. and it did very well for us. I think the um, the way that we view shows from a business point of view is they're never going to they're never going to pay you in orders that you take right there. Yeah. Unless you're Rob English, yeah, <laughs> uh, um, they're never going to pay you with like with deposits um, for frames right right there because you spend so much getting there and setting up and time spent, blah blah blah. Um, if you if you've got off, you know the, the amount of orders you'd have to take is massive. Yeah. So you have to go. For us, we go in with that that mindset. Well, this is not how it works. What you're getting out of it is mostly exposure. Now there's a certain amount of exposure to people there mm-hmm. but actually the the main benefit is is the press and you, know, you can get big press outlets who aren't who are there they're there to make content they're not going to be trying to make you buy advertising because they're there to you know to show the just to show the show yeah um and then you've got those um those outlets showing your um, showing your bikes um, to and you know a vast amount of people um, and obviously though that vast amount of people are going to be far more disinterested than any person who's bothered to drag themselves from wherever they live to come to the show mm-hmm. but within that vast amount of people there are going to be people that are interested in bikes um, and so for us it is about the press and yeah. that's what we, when we try and work out, you know, we, we just do cost benefit analysis and obviously it's get 
it's, it's always entirely guesswork. But you can normally find out who's going to be going to the show um, as far as the press is concerned. You go out for a while, so you know, you get, you know, you know the people, you know the faces, and um, work out who's going to the show um, and how much you think it's going to cost you to get there, how much you're going to, you know, what's the outlay, what the returns going to be, and that's how we sort of decide. So um, for us at the moment, because we're really sort of trying to to hit the States, everything we're doing, we've been over twice this year, we'll probably be over again at some point this year as well. Yeah. Um, and we're just, we're just focusing on the States. I think the thing for, for us, and this is, and well, this is one of the nice things for Bespoke, which is why it's sort of set up to not work for Ison in a lot of ways, if that makes sense, because it was set up about these sort of you know, for, for custom builders, you know, making these sort of amazing one-off bikes. Um, it's it's always in the it was in London once, uh, but other than that, it's always in Bristol. It's in an amazing space. But what that means is it's often you either have there's other people who are definitely coming because they really want to see it. Um, and they travel from far around, or it's people that are relatively local. So it's not like with NABs where it moves around the country, mm-hmm. um, and you're getting a, a whole new pool of customers every time you move. Um, you will often see the same faces um, yeah. there. So for us, because we need to sell a lot of bikes, um, a lot more than we did when we were Talbot or Hartley, um, that makes it a harder sell for us to want to go there overcoming to nabs or overcoming to um chris king open house or, or you know whatever because um we know that there's a massive untapped yeah. um market of people that that haven't seen our bikes there whereas we we there's a good chance that the people that we're seeing at the spokes will already know, mm-hmm. know of our bikes yeah so you gotta you gotta sign up for I'm the not, gotta sign up for the Philly Bike Expo next year. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. We're 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 planning on. Oh, that's um, great. Yeah, it's it's a terrific of, show. I'm I can't wait for it. Yeah, I was talking to um, uh, John Watson about it, and he said it was he said it was really, like really worth doing. It's oh. just the thing. It's sort of again, it's working out what makes the most sense um, to get to, yep. um, and. Also, because we're new, I think there's you get a lot of like a, a bike this expensive. People don't tend. There obviously are some people, but part of the enjoyment about buying a product like this is the build-up, and yeah. it's the um, uh, it's the thinking about it and the decision making. Oh, am I going to do it? Am I not going to do it? You know, when people are are, are doing these. Um, uh, 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 are making these sorts of purchases they could be this could be happening over six months or a year you know that part of like such a big part of it is the anticipation um and that anticipation even before you you know, you put your deposit down um and so you don't you know risk you you never know the full return of something until like a year down the line often um and also for us, because we're a new company, we're not in the same, you know, not even in the same country. Um, we need to sort of show, not, it's not a flash in the pan, it's not some made up thing, that we're a presence now. 
mm-hmm. um, you know, we're, and that's why we're just, uh, you know, we're just coming back. We're just saying, look, still here, can't get rid of us. <laughs> um, I've got my Esther. <laughs> it's valid till 2022. Bye, bye, I'll leave you alone. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, that's, that's at the moment for us, we're sort of, we're not doing so much in the, um, uh, in the UK. Um, we're, we're doing a lot. And also, the, again, this is what the, um, won't get sidetracked too much, but the economy in the UK is sort of is is um, is really shit at the moment. So um, that obviously causes problems for us. Yeah. But then it perversely makes us more marketable over here. Mm-hmm. You know, we're like twenty percent cheaper than we were eighteen months ago <laughs> in real terms. If you're an American, yeah, with the exchange rate, because we didn't put our prices up. Yeah. So you know, we're we're. Um, and uh, sorry, we're great value for money. Yeah, uh, I can sense Fenella scowling at me right now. Um, <laughs> we're yeah, we're you know it's uh, there's just no reason not to not to be pushing the states at the moment. Yeah, yeah, and I mean when I look at your bikes, they're just uh, they're distinct. Uh, I think a lot of that has to do with the finishing, but I mean they look like dialed bikes too. You know the the geometry of them and the build kits on them and the the construction. Uh, and then, of course, the finishing and the paintwork, you know, just about every bike that I, every bike that, of yours that I, that sticks in my memory has a fade. Do, do they all have fades? Uh, if, if we could do, if there's any way that we can squeeze them in, then yeah, they'll have a fade. That's um, awesome. I, I love fades. I'm a sucker people, for them. Yeah. And if you've chosen, the thing is, we've got so it's like, it, it's just, again, it, we were saying earlier, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. If you've done that many bikes with a fade... Yeah, that's um, what people come for. Then uh, that's what people come for. I mean, I had... This is, this is when I was doing tool book, but well, there was this one time I had a guy and he emailed me and he was like, can you build me this bike? And he sent me a picture of a Donhu. <laughs> and I was like, but it's a Donhu. And he was like, yeah, yeah, I know, but I want, I want it exactly... I was like, what is it that you want? And it was basically, he just wanted a rep. I said, but why don't you just get a Donhu? And he was like, oh, yeah, I suppose. And I, oh, <laughs> you know, I don't know why you, you come to the wrong person. I think you do, <laughs> so we still, even now with Iceland, where it's like, it's very clear that, you know, this is what it is. This is what, these are the things we make. And here is the options that you can choose from when you get people asking, you know, mm-hmm. can you do me a recumbent trike mm-hmm. um, for, for me and my dog? Um, and uh, I'm, you know, that's unfortunately, I don't know what on the website gave you the idea we did that, but no, <laughs> at the moment we're yeah, we're at the early prototype stages of our recumbent dog trike, but yeah. it's still not ready for the market, so <laughs> come, come back in a year or two. <laughs> Man, that actually, I would like to take my dog on some rides. That would be fun, but... <laughs> Gotta, uh, if you're listening and you feel like uh, you know making some recumbent dog trikes and you want to let me prototype it, I'll take my dog Clemmy on some rides and let you know how it is. But all right, well, I, th- I mean that wraps up most of my questions that I had planned out for this interview. Uh, I, I was super interested to learn more about your background and more about you know what building in the UK is like, and uh, I think your bikes are gorgeous, and I think it's cool what you guys are doing. Uh, I want to get a, I want to get. Karen also on the show at some point to hear you know sort of her backstory and and what she brings into the uh, Eisen workshop because um, you know obviously like uh, a lot of the bikes that she had on display at NABS were very beautiful and cool bikes too and so it's it's interesting to see there's no one business model for frame building and there's all different ways that you can do it and 
uh, you know, what you're doing is a little bit different than what a lot of people are doing. And so it's interesting. Yeah, cheers, man. Yeah, should be um, should be up for it. If only to um, get on the record all the things that I've got wrong. <laughs> <laughs> cool, man. Well, uh, yeah, I really appreciate it. Um, enjoy your time in New York, and uh, and we'll talk soon. I'll see you at the next show. Sweet. All right, mate. I'll speak to you soon.